Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, the owner of 3Pi Squared, and this is the ABA Business Leaders Podcast. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our membership program. 3Pi Squared has helped over 700 ABA practices start up and expand. Our membership has over 45 hours of content from experts in the fields of law, accounting, diversity and inclusion, childhood development, mindfulness, business development, HIPAA compliance, marketing and branding, billing, and more. We also have discounts on things like our 3Pi Squared handbooks, professional liability insurance, background checks, HIPAA compliant email, contacts, calendars, and cloud storage. The membership also includes 33 CEUs, live Ask Us Anything events where you can come on and ask your questions as you're going through the program. And in our app, you can also add anonymous questions and get your answers. To learn more about the membership, please go to our website, www.3pisquared.com and click on ABA Business Leaders. And now let's get to the episode. Thanks for joining us today. Today we have Nicole Stewart. She is a BCBA, a mom, an educator, and an advocate that's been working with special needs populations for over 15 years. She's had the opportunity to work in almost every setting, ranging from residential programs to general education classrooms, which gives her an eclectic background. This has also afforded Nicole the ability to work with and learn from a large variety of professionals over the years. In July 2021, Nicole stepped down as the clinical director of a small agency in Manhattan to pursue her passion projects full-time. Nicole provides direct one-to-one behavioral therapy, specializing in unique cases that require BCBA-level support. Additionally, she runs Solutions for Exceptional Children, a consulting and training business that supports parents and professionals towards inclusive and meaningful educational and enrichment experiences. Her third business venture is Supervision Reimagined, which aims to reduce barriers towards effective fieldwork supervision practices. On top of all of that, Nicole is an adjunct lecturer at Hunter College in the ABA program. In her free time, Nicole is trying to separate her mom brain from her BCBA brain and avoiding the decision of what's for dinner yet again. She also reads knits and is in constant pursuit of a full night's sleep. Welcome so much, Nicole. We're so glad to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much for um, having me today. And I am very excited to talk about multidisciplinary practices. And um, thank you for such a wonderful introduction. (laughs) We're glad that you're here. And there's lots of questions we get all the time on multidisciplinary. So we're hoping that you can help us with that. So without further ado, I will throw up the slideshow and uh, we will get into it. All right, great. Um, So we can go, this is the title slide, we can go to the next slide. Um, We'll jump right in and talk about why we want to start a multidisciplinary practice. Um, Oh, hold on. I'm having technical difficulties already, so give me one second. Well, while you're working on that, um, 
What I can say is that, you know, for me, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. I've never worked in a setting that has not had other disciplines in it. I am a special education teacher and a BCBA, so I am multidisciplinary at heart myself. Um, and it has afforded me the ability to look at my clients in a more holistic way and also strengthen my ability to figure out what what's within my practice scope and what's not within my practice scope. Because I know as a BCBA myself, I always want to be like, yes, I can help, I can help. But I can't do everything, right? I'm not trying right. to do everything. So, um, so we want to want to start by talking about why we started a multidisciplinary practice. And as I, I just said, like, it really helps, has helped me over the years working with so many different disciplines know what my scope of practice is. And as BCBA is, we are trained to treat autism, but we are not necessarily trained to treat everything that comes with autism and every single component of autism. So, okay. So this is our nice little bullet so that you know what, we can follow along with us. Um, so yeah, so we know autism, uh, we know developmental disabilities or ADHD, we can practice within the scope of the diagnoses that we've been trained in, but we're not necessarily trained to treat all of the symptoms of every single diagnosis that we work with. So for instance, I don't know anything about hypo or hypertonia. That's something a PT would treat. I don't provide treatment or assessment for sensory processing disorder but I might have clients that have sensory processing disorder. So that's something an OT would treat or provide guidance on. I also think a lot about apraxia because in ABA we do work in verbal behavior, obviously. We work in a lot of communication. And if you have a child who has physical motor planning delays or issues and physically cannot make specific movements with their mouth, you can do all the man training in the world that you want to do, but they're not likely to make progress without speech therapeutic interventions. So you really need a speech therapist to support children with apraxia. Um, I know I had worked with um, a child who couldn't do bilabial noises, which is another, you know, I've learned that from speech therapists, what a bilabial is. Um, but he couldn't make a b or a mmm. And she provided our behavioral team training on how to promote those noises. And then also when, you know, at some point he was able to make it in the initial sound, but at the end of the word, he couldn't do it. And so she provided us that feedback and support to know when we should accept an approximation versus when we should accept the correct pronunciation of a word. Um, and that was really helpful because I also think, you know, going into another piece where we're supporting our client's progress and we're also supporting our client's development. The autistic community talks a lot about trauma in ABA. And I think that sometimes that can come from a place where if I'm treating a client with apraxia without being mindful that they have apraxia and I'm trying to force them to do something they physically can't do, it's horrible. Like I can't, I just, I can't imagine if somebody was like, Nicole, you're going to fly. I'm going to, you have to fly. I'm going to make you fly. You have to do it. There's no choice. You have to do something that you physically can't do. It's like really demoralizing. It's going to kill their self-esteem, their self-worth. And something like apraxia, you know, a child might eventually learn to emit a bilabial, but at what cost to their self-esteem and to their self-worth? And I think that when you have those other experts in those domains, you support their progress, you support their self-esteem. I think it can be really, you know, beneficial and a holistic way. Yeah, we spoke with Oswin Latimer over like a five hour discussion. Um, and this was one of her big or one of their big issues was 
You know, like there has to be a multidisciplinary group. It, it really needs to be an entire team if you're going to use ABA because ABA doesn't doesn't do everything. And, and it's really important we understand what the child needs uh, before we just say, yeah, we can fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know when I first started in the field, I think that there was a lot of, um, you know, I can do man training. I could teach a child to talk. Right. And now... Oh, if I just use shaping, I'll teach that. You know, I feel like when I first started in the field, like apraxia, I feel like that I didn't hear that term when you're trained in ABA. I didn't really learn a lot about considerations for, you know, growth motor, fine motor delays. Um, and as you learn more about those, you're like, oh, well, that's why this kid I worked with a decade ago couldn't write their name. So I think it is really, it is, it's, if you don't take those things into consideration, you're trying to provide treatment without understanding the full symptomology of the, of the disorder. So, and I, I also, you know, for myself, I think my experience has been, it's enriched my own professional development Mm -hmm. and has allowed me to have a really eclectic background. And I provide very eclectic treatment to the clients that I work with. I'm not, not an OT. I'm not providing occupational therapy. Nobody needs to report me for providing services that are not (laughs) under my domain. Um, but I do think that I can look at a kid and I can say, okay, I just tried teaching them how to write their name and I see that they don't know how to grip a pencil. I need to go talk to an occupational therapist about what's going on with hand strength or are they not, do they have decreased feeling in their fingers? Like what's going on? And, you know, I can kind of assess when it's not in my domain much more quickly because I know that there's so many other things out there. And then just uh, on the reg side of things, just so everyone knows, is that most funders require coordination of care anyway. So this is something that we should be doing. It makes it a whole lot easier in a multidisciplinary group. Yes, yes. And I think also to that point, too, with the, the regs and collaboration in the group, the reality of, of our field is that in the treatment for autism and developmental delays and other disorders, is that most people are probably getting therapy from multiple people anyway. And it's a lot easier to collaborate if you're all under one roof or under the same employer than if you have, even just especially now with COVID and restrictions and being able to see other places, having to get 72 signatures and like a negative COVID test to go to another clinic is is burdensome and makes collaboration. How many barriers is that? Right, right. Um, so this is just some common disciplines to add, and I apologize, it's a little smaller than I expected, but, uh, you know, some things that you might consider adding a speech language pathologist, occupational therapist, physical therapist, uh, you might consider adding a psychologist or a social worker, academic interventionist, or adaptive physical educator. These are the kind of the most common other therapies that I've seen for autism for special needs. Um, not all of them, obviously an academic interventionist is not going to be reimbursable by insurance, but that one's really stuck with me because I now think it would be a really great idea for somebody to have an academic interventionist who can provide, if you, let's say you run a center and your kids are there during the day, they can provide group opportunities that are accessing what you would see in a general education classroom to students during the day. And then they could also provide one-on-one private pay tutoring to students who are ready for that or to students after school as well. So it may also open up revenue streams that previously wouldn't have been available. Because I think that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of emphasis Academic interventionists don't necessarily know how to work with children with significant needs who might need center-based one-on-one therapy, but being in an environment that provides that and provides them that support can kind of expand how we support our field. 
Yeah, for sure. And with the social worker, would that be just for the child uh, or would you bring in, would that be like for the entire family, like to kind of guide them through, you know, like sometimes, you know, I, in my experience, not a BCBA, but what I've heard over the years is that the diagnosis itself can be very traumatic for the family, right? And so, and then I, I, I don't know the research off the top of my head, but I think the divorce rate is much higher with families where they have a special needs child. So would that be bringing in, you know, family therapy as well? Or, or is that something you've seen or? Yeah, so I've seen um, practices working to start to have more, uh, you know, the social workers supporting siblings and parents, providing groups. I think that those are the pieces that depend on, on your fund, your sources of funding right. or what you want to be able to offer mm-hmm. free to parents or what you want to be able to say, like, oh, we also do a sibling group that you could pay for, for instance. Because right. um, that's, I think, the sibling piece is a big component that people are starting to move towards. Sorry. Um, and that's the same with a psychologist as well. Um, and there are some groups that I have seen with psychologists that the psychologists or neuropsych can do the diagnosing and then it kind sure. of creates like a whole one roof system. Um, I, I feel like it's, I feel mixed about that as like you're diagnosing and treating in the same place. Yeah. 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 Um, it feels a little bit like a conflict of interest, but sure. I also think that people have done it. I've seen people do it in a very professional and respectful way that we provide the diagnosis. You could also come here, but here are other providers right. other options. Right. Yeah. I think like the diagnosis, getting the diagnosis for a lot of families can be a huge barrier. So I could see the, the benefit of having that, but you're right. Like there is that like, eh, what does this person really need these services? Yeah. Or is there some kind of incentive here to, yeah. So it, it, it can, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yep. I would say the biggest ones that people tend to go to are the speech OT and PT. Sure. Because I think that they're the most, they have the lowest barriers to implementation for an agency. Right. You know, there's other types of interventions as well. So, you know, we've heard of art therapy or music therapy, there's floor time, animal therapy. There's all sorts of other things. They're not based in research. So I don't recommend exploring those too much because they're also probably not reimbursable by most funders. I think floor time, there's some places where floor time is now, but floor time and ABA really don't play well together. But I do feel, you know, things like art, music, dance, yoga, that kind of, those kind of activities can enrich the lives of anyone. Um, and so those are, might be ways to explore enhancing your agency, especially if you have a center-based agency um, or you have a brick-and-mortar space um, that you can uh, provide for families to have, you know, another outlet or opportunities for groups or socializing. Um, but those aren't necessarily things that you're going to look at getting reimbursed by insurance or um, getting full funding for. Yeah. One of the recommendations, like it's a nice to have when you're looking at a clinic is what's around you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so having like a yoga studio or like a dance studio, these things can be helpful, right? That you can just okay, we're going here and then we're going to the clinic, right? It can be very helpful for the parents so they're not having to drive around the entire city. Uh, so like things like that can be super helpful. Well, I know it's semi-related, but um, just recently there was a post about um, asking in our area if there were like gymnastics providers and dance providers and soccer and, you know, sports and like after school activities and that were, um, you know, that, that, 
other people had had their children with autism attend or other providers had kind of worked with helping like maybe the dance studio to like modify things or incorporate things to help um, our kids, Mm -hmm. you know, to join in and also as kind of a social component as well. So yeah, that's, that's kind of a good idea for that location. Absolutely. And it's also a great way to network and brand too. Right. So, you know, we're, we teach the dance studio how to help, children with special needs we help the you know the soccer coach help with you know we we provide some support there and that can be a great way to help the community and and make some inroads with you know other families that may not reach out to you because they've not heard of you so all of that like networking and supporting the 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 uh the local community is a great way to market your your company uh so yeah anything like that can be helpful Yes. And if you're not ready to bring in like, um, let's say maybe you do want to bring an in-house artist in at some point to do as an art teacher, maybe you're not ready for that. You could collaborate with somebody Mm -hmm. nearby and have them, you know, like my son's school, my son's a three, my little one, um, his daycare just had a dentist come in, Mm -hmm. which I think is pretty common. You know, they could have an art teacher come in as like a special thing. And I think it also gives, I think a lot of times what happens with neurodiverse populations is they miss out on those opportunities to explore their interests. Like my seven-year-old right now, he's doing the, the play for his school and they were playing around with a guitar and now he's teaching himself guitar. And I feel like they don't, con- your kids kind of don't always come in contact with those natural contingencies, yeah. and like those natural opportunities to just like play around with a guitar mm-hmm. and who knows, there might be a kid in there who loves playing a guitar. I, I work with a kid now who has perfect pitch. Perfect mm. pitch. It's like unbelievable. He can hear a song and he can repeat it back instantly. Mm. And it's it's amazing. And I feel like if his parents didn't explore that, you would miss that. Yeah, 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 for sure. So you've decided to bring someone on board. You want to, you know, the different discipline. Uh, and what, I, what I'll say is I'm speaking very generally about just the idea of creating a multidisciplinary practice without pinning down exactly what disciplines. I think we'll talk a little bit later about how to decide where to start, but to try to reach more people globally, because I think there's going to be different needs and different regulations in different areas. Um, You know, you want to, you really, when you decide that you want to bring on another discipline besides ADA, you want to really seriously sit down and think about what are your values as an agency and an organization and how do I align my systems and my actions to reflect those values? And so you might decide that you want to be an agency, an ABA based agency that also offers OT or an ABA based agency that also offers speech. And then in those instances, you would say we are an ABA agency that happens to have all these other things, but ABA comes first. And that sets the expectation for everybody who works there, for the families, that ABA is kind of the priority and the main source of therapy, but all these other things complement it. Or you might say, we want to be a truly multidisciplinary agency. And we know that ABA probably has more hours for most of our clients, but we value each discipline equally. I personally recommend the second one. I think that uh, in terms of finding quality people, out in other disciplines, you're going to have an easier time finding people who want to be valued as equals than people who want to kind of come in in that secondary position. Um, but I don't think it's, you could do it either way. I've seen it done either way and I can see it being done successfully either way. I think that you just find staff of a different level when you have that true collaboration. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And like I said, in our talk with Oswin, it was, this has to be a, a truly multidisciplinary group. It can't be just, we kind of do this thing on the side, right? Yeah. Like it has to be a true thing where the speech therapist can say, you know, I don't think this child needs ABA. I think it's something different. And And then there is this actual real discussion on, okay, what are we doing instead, right? How are we helping this family, helping this child that needs very uh, a very unique set of, of supports? Yeah. And so if you are hopefully doing a, a full multidisciplinary practice, you might start, I'm going to be really honest, this isn't going to happen overnight. So you might start as an ABA agency that offers speech because you're not going to start overnight and be like, we're now a speech and ABA agency or a multidisciplinary agency. Um, but some things that you want to think about, you want to you want to align your systems from start to finish. So even considerations for how you do your intakes. You might want to have other disciplines join intakes. Um, you know, I think about uh, an intake packet that I made where I asked the PT, you know, I, I tried to design it. I was like, well, I've, I've watched you enough. I could figure this out. And she was like, well, I want to know how kids run. And I want to know if they can ride a bike. And I was like completely off. I was like, how do they take the stairs? How can they do sit-ups? And she was like, no, no, no. Like, I don't care about the strength. I don't care about the stretching and the muscular develop, like whether or not they can do a jumping jack necessarily right now. And this is hard. Another PT might be listening and be like, no, I do care about these things. Sure. Um, but she's like, I want to know how they're actually using their body mechanics functionally so that I can, I can then assess for where the deficits are. I didn't think like that. I was looking at like, what are her treatment goals and what are the things that she works on? Not how do they look functionally? Um, so I think it's really important that you're finding experts um, you're finding people who are not new to the field, to their field, and that want to take this initiative to help develop these systems so that you can incorporate them from intakes to assessments to creating goal templates. Everything has to align and look like a nice, neat company, but they also have to align with each individual domain as well. So it's not going to be perfect, but you're not going to have everything look exactly the same. Um, but you want to make sure that you're taking into that into consideration and you're not just saying, well, this is what we do for ABA, so your OT goals are going to look the same. Sure, right. And I don't know, maybe you get into this in the presentation, but just a, like that brought up a question for me was like, okay, so how does an assessment look? Like, how does an intake look? Is it is it BCBAs going out, doing the intake, and the PTs back here, and the OT, and the speech, and then they, like the BCBA comes back and tells them about it, or are we doing multiple assessments because, you know, of insurance, I assume, uh, so how, how did that kind of work from your point of view? So we, I've created pretty like, you know, 15, 20 page intake packets so that you're getting, you know, you get, I think everybody needs to know what the child's interests are, behaviors, language. Those are kind of standard across any discipline that you kind of want to know what the personality of, of the child you're about to work with that you've never met is, right, what to right. expect how to prepare, you know, if it's a child who can sit still for 20 minutes, it's helpful to know that. If it's a child who needs breaks every five minutes, helpful to know that for anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, having the intake packet get enough information that, you know, if you have an OT director or senior OT can look at it and say, I don't feel like I need to see this child. I don't feel like I need to assess what their needs are. It's clear that they need OT or it's clear, you know, it's, clear they don't need OT or this seems pretty 
cut and dry and mm-hmm. then kind of determining there who needs to attend that initial intake to decide what type of services to provide. But then I know it'll vary, I guess, by funder because I would, I would guess that most insurance companies would need an assessment for each domain. Sure. So once you start a client, you would, each domain would assess independently. Right. And they would have their own assessment process. Um, but again, like especially OT and PT, they sometimes overlap. There's certain assessments that they both may do. And so if you have a child who is getting both, you want to make sure that the, they're not both. And then, you know, like insurance, if OT does the assessment and right. then PT does the assessment, neither of them count, like right. Right. that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, just a, a, sorry to interrupt, but on a side note, we're we're trying to bring in a biller that is a, a multidisciplinary expert because like this yeah. is beyond the scope that I have. Like, ha, like we'll get into scheduling, I think, right? A little bit of that, yeah. but like, okay, now we've scheduled it, but how do we bill it, right? Like, so that that oh my goodness, I'm sure it's yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah, and all those yeah, all those pieces, I feel like. The funding is kind of the foundation because you have to figure out all how you're going to get paid in order to be able to provide the services. Absolutely. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it's not going to go perfectly. I feel like sometimes things like the idea of true collaboration sounds really wonderful, but it's not everything's not going to go perfectly. And, you know, this is just some some ways, some things that you're going to anticipate that are going to be growing pains as you figure out how to work with different disciplines. Um, One thing that I found really helpful is to really clearly define your scope of practice. And so knowing what's within ABA and what's within speech and getting to know if you have a practice that has ABA speech and OT, you need to familiarize yourself with ASHA and AOTA and get to know what their guidelines are and what their practice, what their practice is specified as. Um, and then there's going to be times where it overlaps, uh, which is really challenging because, you know, ABA and speech both teach language. So what happens when they want to you have a BCBA and a speech therapist who want to teach language in two different ways and determining how as an owner, how is that going to go? Because they're going to disagree and it's okay to disagree. But what forum are you providing to navigate those disagreements? How are you mediating those disagreements? How are you determining the next steps? How are you not getting stuck in those disagreements? I've had times where feeding is particularly like a pain point um, because everybody, you can have feeding therapists in like most domains. And so everybody addresses it differently and everybody sees it differently. And then I've had points where people are just like, I don't know what to do. And then nobody deals with it. And that's, you can't just not deal with it. This is a child's life right. um, and their, their well-being. And so it's being able to, you have to be the leader as, a, as the owner to figure out how are we going to move past these disagreements in a professional and respectful way. And I know there's, there's a few articles. I know the, there's an article that Matt Broadhead wrote in 2015 that he kind of conceptualizes a decision-making tree or apparatus to figure out when to speak up versus when to not speak up about disagreements. And I think he talks a lot about the idea that if it's not doing any harm, putting your foot down because it's not ADA is probably going to do the relationship more harm than it is good. And also being able to reserve that, like, "Mm, that's not really ethical for the things that will cause harm. Right. Helps build respect 
because I feel like if you, I can, and I've done that before where I've been like, well, I don't, I really, you know, I feel like this isn't, is not, this is um, a risk to this child or something like that. Um, I, I can't do it or we can't do that during our ABA time or we can't do it. I, we can't do that here. Um, and being able to say that. And I feel like owners or clinic, chief clinical officers or clinical directors have to be able to feel comfortable getting involved and making decisions in those, in those challenging moments and knowing when to say, okay, we're going to try it and we're going to take data so that we know if it's working or no, this feels very unethical or this feels like a boundary. Right. Um, and to try to be as transparent as possible with those. It's really the disagreements. I mean, as VCs, we don't always get along. Yeah. Like even if it's in our own field. Yeah. I mean, even in our group, right, we had, I think, six or seven BCBAs at, at one point and like they pro all programmed differently, right? right? They all did their own thing and they all had things that they thought were more of a priority than than other things. Even just getting them to be able to work together sometimes is difficult. Yeah. And then my experience as an engineer uh, in, in some large groups is, you know, we'll have chemical engineers and material engineers and we'll have uh, electrical and mechanical and they all kind of have their own niche and they all think that they have the answer. And so, you know, it, it can be very difficult if the lead, whoever is leading the group doesn't have the confidence and, and the, you know, like the, I don't know, the, sometimes maybe even the courage to step forward and say, no, this is not how we're going to do it. We're going to do it this way based on the evidence. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I could imagine this could be a very difficult uh, part of it, right? Making sure that everyone feels heard, but we're also doing the things that are the best benefit to the child, providing quality services. Uh, I could imagine that this could be the thing that brings your team to the next level or <laughs> causes so much uh, pain that, that like you no longer have a multidisciplinary group because you just, you can't do it. Uh, like, do you, do you recommend anything? Cause I, I assume, and maybe this is the wrong assumption that I'm making here, but I assume that the vast majority of the people have an ABA company and they're adding versus a speech therapist adding ABA and maybe OT. And, and again, maybe that's the wrong assumption to make, but like in general, is there some kind of training or something that people can so they get a broader scope, or is that just experience? Mine is mostly through experience. I don't feel that I've had a ton of training. I do have, you know, some different articles that I've read over the years, and I think that programs are starting to get a little bit better about providing a little bit more training in other areas or awareness, at least, of other disciplines. Um, I agree with you. Like, my general understanding is that it's like ABA adding, or it's like a BCBA who, who wants to open up a multidisciplinary company is kind of the sense that I seem to get, right. but yeah, there's not a ton, there's not a ton of training out there that I've come across. I mean, I would love if anybody like yeah. anybody's listening and has resources or ideas, I would also love to hear them. Um, I recently just did, um, so I did an externship with the Association for, uh, for Science and Autism Treatment. Um, ASAT, um, and I did that a couple years ago, and I stayed on as the clinical coordinator and a clinical corner co co-coordinator and the CEU co-coordinator, co and we just did um, an internal journal club all about multidisciplinary mm -hmm. collaboration, which was really amazing. 
Um, we had some like pretty big hitters talking about uh, some diff- different articles, and so we're looking at exploring how to how to add that into the general ABA community as well, um, because it, it does seem to be from the data we collected, it does seem to be a deficit sure. in the ABA community in terms of training. Right, because like again, going back to engineering, because that's really all I know. So like even even in a group where you had a lead that may also be just from one disciplinary right so they they're they're like they're leading a group of a multidisciplinary engineering team but they're a materials engineer they may not have the confidence in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering to say no that's not right right like you're this isn't how we're going to do it this isn't the right process so i would imagine this would be very similar for a bcba that may not have a ton of experience with speech or ot or pt like how do you even know you know enough to say that this is unethical or this isn't the right approach? You know what I mean? Without yeah. having that bias of going back on what you know and saying, no, this is ABA. I know. I know we can do it. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. So that is, yes, that does make sense. And that's something that I have come across where there's been very complex cases where I'm just not sure. And I can kind of hear, it's almost like you're like a judge and you can kind of... <laughs> hear everybody's point of view and then you have to take it all in and make a decision. Um, and you're right. There've been times where I'm like, I don't know if that's how a mouth is supposed to move. Like, I don't know. Nobody taught me that. Or I don't know if that's that physiology. And so what I do, I'm a self starter. I'm a learner. Like, and I think most ABA owner agency owners probably are as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what I usually do in those instances is like, you kind of have to present it all to me. You have to give me all the information. You have to give me citations. I need to read things. You know, mm-hmm. I think AAC is a really good example because I've worked with, there's not a ton of research on how to teach how to use an AAC device. A lot of it is kind of forthcoming. It's still being done. And so I've worked with a lot of different speech therapists who teach a lot of different ways. And it's hard to say whether or not it's working. I also look at how do I know if it's working? We're going to take data on it. How can I design a data collection system? that gives me accurate information as to whether or not this is effective if somebody, if there is no research, which often happens. Sure. And so sometimes it's nailing that down too, is like really figuring out like, what are we trying to teach? How are we going to show that if this is working for this child or not? How long do you think it's going to take for, for us to see something? And then to make it, I think with an AAC in particular, like that's kind of, that's how I've navigated that. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, I mean, I know how to teach language from an ABA perspective, but there's so many different models and speech on how to teach language and how to teach language on an AAC device. And it's more about will it cause harm? And if it's not going to cause harm, how are we going to measure whether or not it's effective for this client? Got it. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's hard. I feel like the disagreements, that's probably, you're right, it is the hardest part. So if you're looking to start, you, oh, you want to know what, actually, the last one, because I want to talk about scheduling. Sure. The last point. You know, like, a, just a, a note on training is that you're going to have to figure out how you're training other disciplines, that if somebody's coming in and it's a truly multidisciplinary environment, you're not just training them in only ABA, and you're making sure that the trainings are custom. You're not training them to be an RBT. I've had staff members who have come in and they felt like they're expected to do what an ABA therapist is doing. Mm -hmm. And so you want to make sure that they feel that they can do their discipline, but then also that you're providing opportunities for them to train ABA people as well. 
um, and so that everybody's able to learn from each other. And there's client-specific and ongoing training and general, like, learn more about each other's disciplines. There's so many different types of trainings as well. And then the logistical realities, those are the fun pieces, too. I feel like the disagreements <laughs> and the scheduling are like, if you can conquer those two things, you're golden. <laughs> like, you're good. You know, because, like, you had that great podcast about the block scheduling, yeah. which I think is, is so great and makes things, can streamline things so much. But now you're going to add in speech. You don't do three hours of speech at a time. You do 45 minutes at a time or an hour at a time um, and maybe only twice a week. So how do you fit in those, those type of mandates without making everybody's heads explode? I think it's, it's, it can be really tricky. And I think, you know, trying to balance everybody's schedules as much as possible is where like you have to try to be as fair as possible so that you don't have one tech who every time they have a kid, they have also have a speech session and they get extra prep time or something, or they lose extra income because they're not working with a child at that time. So you have to really consider how it fits into your scheduling mechanism already. And then you also have to figure out how you're determining mandates. And that again, kind of goes back to the funders potentially as well. You know, if a child has an outside private evaluation that might recommend how much speech OT or PT or adaptive phys ed or counseling that, that child might need. Um, but if it doesn't, then you want to have your people doing assessments to determine that and to have proof of that, of I'm not just giving this child five days of speech because we get paid for five days of speech and that's great. We're giving this child five days and this child three days because that's what they both need. Um, and then there's like all these other little pieces like, you have to consider materials. How are you sharing materials between departments? That's also surprisingly sometimes a headache that people just don't, literally don't share belongings that well. Um, and so you have to figure out, you know, does speech get their own closet? Do they get their own materials? Do they, is it child specific? Do you have, does each child have what they need in their home? Um, office spaces, do you have everybody sitting together? Do you have everybody sitting by department? Do you have hot desks or floating desks? Um, and then absence coverage, which again is a funder question, a funding question as well. Um, because I know, you know, I'm based out of mostly New York City where a lot of um, therapy is covered through the DOE and education. And so if a speech therapist is absent, let's say, you can kind of replace that with ABA for the day because they have enough, the child most likely has enough ABA hours cover that but in other places if the speech therapist is absent do you have to rearrange the schedule so the parent can pick them up early or um you know they have speech at 12 45 but weren't going home till three what do you do you know what do you do from 12 45 to 1 30 until the aba therapist comes back or right. do you push everything up so that they can go home earlier um so those are i mean and those things take up time and those things take up energy and having understanding what the regulations are and how you'll be reimbursed allows you to create that system. And I think the more systems you have in place, the easier it is to manage how many different types of pickups there can be. Yeah, I could have like, I know, like our experience is ABA, right? And I, I can remember the schedule and I did that for two maybe years and like, uh, no, not doing like, I'm not yeah. doing that anymore. And, and that was just ABA, right? That was just, and then you add speech and you add OT and PT and what can be concurrently billed and what can't be. And right. And it's just it. Can, I could imagine this could turn into a huge nightmare. And so 
like you said, having systems in place or planning for this ahead of time. I think if it takes a little bit longer, plan ahead so that you have the, the right systems in place because even having the right systems in place, you're still gonna get some of these things that you didn't expect. And uh, so, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like the scheduling and, and the funding uh, is gonna be a very difficult part of it. And like I said, hopefully we can get a biller on here that has experience yeah. in that because like that piece itself and credentialing and yeah, it, it's so difficult. Uh, just every every discipline you add on to it, right? And and I don't know if I guess I can ask this question. We're talking about um, uh, scheduling right now, but uh, like in your experience, uh, um, should we like? I don't know if this is the right language, but like for when you're bringing on speech, I assume right, you're going to start off small. You may add. A speech therapist maybe is a contractor first and then you're like okay yeah this works and then you hire them on full-time maybe and then do we just is this speech therapist exclusively used for our aba clients or are we bringing in a different type of clientele to get our speech therapist full of hours right and like or how like what do you have a, a good idea on an approach there or, or do you have any suggestions on that? I think what ends up happening oftentimes is that people have the idea that until we have enough ABA clients who need speech, we'll try to recruit other people. And then suddenly it's like, oh, now we need another speech therapist exactly. or half a speech therapist. <laughs> and it kind of gets muddled, right. I think, oftentimes. So I do feel like what ends up happening is that I've seen that most of the time you fill with the existing clients pretty quickly, okay. um, especially if the funding lines up um, where you could bring on different clients. I also think that that can be a challenge then because then you have like so many clients right. and just you're almost operating like two businesses under one roof as opposed to providing multidisciplinary services. Um, so I would recommend trying to fill it with your existing clients and then, you know, on occasion, you know, you might have somebody who just needs speech OT and PT and doesn't need ABA or right. somebody who just needs ABA and OT and doesn't need speech, um, or doesn't have funding for speech or whatever the case sure. may be. Sure. Um, but I think that being able to do it, say we provide multiple services for each client, I think is probably going to be more successful. Right. And I assume that this is, an, again, another way of rate negotiation, which we talked about two weeks ago. This is a great uh, way to market your company as, and ask for better rates because a lot a lot of agencies just don't have this ability. And so if you can add that, I think that this is a great selling point. Yeah. I also think that there's a lot of agencies that I know, at least in my area, so I'm in New, northern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of places that are like speech OT and PT or OT and PT or OT and speech or speech and counseling. I think there's a lot of multidisciplinary places I know of mm -hmm. that don't include ABA. Right. And so being able to reach out to those places, too, and like, how do they handle how do they schedule all of those disciplines? Mm -hmm. How do they handle this? Um, may also give some insight specifically into what it looks like where you are. Yeah. So where to start? I feel like there's <laughs> so many places to start. I think the funding is, is a big piece, but I also think your clinical knowledge to start with your, you know, how are you growing your clinical knowledge? 
Um, there are a few research articles. I mentioned the Broadhead article. There's a great article by Gashevsky, uh, Mary Jane Weiss, um, Justin Leaf, and Labowitz. You know, there's a, about OTs and, and, a, and BCBAs. There's some, like, really great, some really great research on, on just, like, how to effectively collaborate. I also like listening to a lot of leadership podcasts or, you know, I read a lot of leadership books as well because I think that those are also really gr- great ways to learn how to manage a diverse team or, you know, a team with, with different types of training So as you're trying to figure that out. And then if you're not sure what discipline to start with, you know, you could always conduct a needs assessment. So you can mm-hmm. talk to the parents of the clients that you already have. You could talk to the BCBAs, like what, what issues co- constantly come up with the clients that you have that you don't feel ABA can resolve. You could also look at, you know, what does it look like in your community? Are there other multidisciplinary practices? Are there ones that have ABA and speech, but not ABA and OT, or not ABA speech and OT? And then you might already have, maybe there's places where 75% of your kids get speech therapy from somebody nearby already. Maybe you want to just talk about forming a partnership or a collaboration. That's a great way to try it out and kind of get your feet wet of like, can you send us one of your therapists like two days a week, see how it goes? Um, You know, come up with some type of agreement to just test it out first. I think that that's like an easy, another possible way to start. I met with another company maybe over the summer. Time is so fluid. It's easy. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was two separate companies and one did AB and speech and one did OT and PT and they wanted to combine. And so we were talking about how does it look like when you combine? And so those are, that's an easy option as well. Well, they're easy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Um, you also might be familiar with the discipline. Like I'm working with a teacher right now whose husband is a speech pathologist. And so it's really amazing because the student I have has apraxia. And so she has a, like a foundation for that. And so if you have, you know, maybe you have a friend who's a social worker, you might not want to hire the social, her necessarily, or that friend, but maybe you understand social work a little bit better than you understand PT. It doesn't feel foreign. And you also have somebody who you can be like, who governs social workers? How do I find out what the regulations for social workers are? Makes it a little bit more accessible. Right, right. Um, and then the funding. There's always the funding. <sighs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but in and, an ideal world. Yeah, yeah, in an ideal world. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess I never really thought about it. Like, of course, you would look at the children that you're already servicing and see what needs they have. And that would be a great place to start on which practice, which discipline I should bring in first. Uh, that, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. That's why, um, when, when I still had my, um, my practice, that was one of my big dreams was to bring on a couple of different um, people to help it. I think the two main ones were speech therapy. Um, one main reason, because all of a sudden over the last two years, we had probably, gosh, 70% of our kids were using AAC devices mm. like and, so, and multiple different programs within that and types of devices. And so, I mean, that, that in itself was, was big. So it was a lot of self-learning, trying to work together, but then parents were having to bridge the gap between school speech and, and I, it, it was a thing. And, and so I thought, wouldn't it be easier if we could bring yeah. in a speech therapist? And then the other piece was like some type of, counselor, some type of, even if it were a coach, um, to help like work out like some problem solving communication or something, you know, because just so many dynamics within the family system, 
um, because we provided in-home services and, and to be like another lifeline for even like the techs, you know, to yeah. even to educate our techs of like some of the relating with parents and siblings and whatnot. So, so you know, we were an ABA company and I was looking at bringing in speech and counseling because that was our needs. And when we started preparing for, for this podcast and I was looking into it, I thought, oh, PT, OT, yeah, those also would be great. And earlier in my career, I was based in a school and um, I worked closely with with a lot of OTs and learned a lot of really cool, you know, tricks of the trade of like how to help kids hold pencils and posture them so that they were, you know, more successful. So, but there again, it was, it was ABA based because we were ABA first. Um, So I think that too, also, you know, a lot of Steven's clients, you know, either they're just coming to start from the very beginning or they are already ABA and so they're going to be adding on. So I'm sure that would also, that's amazing that you covered, you know, a variety of, of ways to incorporate into it for people to strategize to, to get this going it depends on what base you already have, yeah. you know. And and not like and that may be again my assumption is that ABA is bringing on multidisciplinary because that is that's all I do, right? right. Is I work with BCBAs and they're starting companies. But there may be lots of speech therapists out there that are trying to add multidisciplinary to to like like you said OT and PT but maybe not ABA. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think even thinking about these practices near me, I'm like maybe I should give them a call cuz I feel like um they could even if they don't necessarily provide these like 20, 30 hours of ADA to different kids, somewhere that provides speech OT and PT probably could use a behaviorist on staff. Yeah. Even just to provide more training on motivation mm-hmm. and, you know, learning and how like how like principles of reinforcement and those pieces to support the staff and the parents with those you know, I work with a private OT. And we've worked together on toothbrushing with a child specifically mm-hmm. because it's a sensory issue, but it's also because it's a sensory issue, it's become a behavioral issue. And so it's like, we're both needed. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of, again, another thing that we highly recommend is just going to speech OT, PT groups and just saying, how can I help? Right? Like I don't go there looking, say, where are my referrals? No, right. just say, how can I help your your clients? How can I help your staff? Is there something that you need that you're not getting from others? What can we do to support you? And and I we've found yeah. that that has been super helpful. Again, we're bringing together a group. We're able to collaborate this way when... I don't know. I, I don't want to generalize here, but I'm going to kind of generalize that sometimes be, like ABA companies seem to be unapproachable. And so uh, going and saying, I want to help you and proving that you actually want to support uh, this other company can be very, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, just a huge game changer. Right. And and when my customers are doing that, they're like, wow, I, I don't need to spend thousands of dollars on Facebook ads anymore, right? I, I just, I'm helping and I'm getting back, right? And so, I don't know. that. Yeah, when, yeah. We, when we started um, over 10 years ago, when we started our company, that was one of the first things I did. I reached out to OT speech, um, early intervention types, any because we, we provided early intervention was our main our main focus, um, age group of focus, but the, um, we reached out to anybody that was providing those services. Um, and we actually, one of the most, we weren't looking to start a multidisciplinary team at that point. We were just 
trying to be part of the community and get more clients, but build our business. But um, probably one of the most amazing experiences I had is one of the ABA, or excuse me, OTPT speech type agencies that I worked with. They offered like a parent, a free parent workshop support mm-hmm. group type thing once a month. And they invited yeah. me to speak at that several times. Right. And, and it was, it was really, it was really a beautiful like experience because we were all kind of working together and parents would come with like general problems. And of course, as much as we could in a few minutes time at a, a group setting, um, you know, we all kind of pulled together some information just to kind of help get a parent started. Um, And we were able to come in and help with some of their sessions sometimes with client specific, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, it can start anywhere, I guess. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, Danica had a comment here. She said that there is one agency that she knows of that is trying to add ABA. Okay. And and like, yeah, it's, it it could be completely my perspective. Just right. Absolutely. Well, because you work with ABA. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then this is just some readings that are helpful for kind of like the theory and the reason. And I think like the two one, the two top two by Broadhead are really great. um, Especially talking about the scope of competence in behavior analysis. I feel like I know I, I was trained as kind of like, you can solve every problem. And there's certain things that we need help solving and that you need to be part of like a, like an Avengers team, and like yes. Avengers assemble or whatever the, the phrase is. I don't know if there's any other questions or I'm happy to just keep talking yeah. about all the different ways I mean, I've collaborated. So far, so far, not really. Uh, the one question uh, I have is like, and, and we've talked about this when we met, was like, what's the best way about going about hiring? And, and I guess I'm specifically talking about speech because that like seems to be the ABA one. Company? Yeah, that seems to be the one mm-hmm. that most people start with, right? In my experience. Yeah. So like, should we be hiring a speech therapist with ABA experience or some knowledge of ABA? Or should we be hiring a speech therapist that has like, maybe no knowledge and then the uh, to follow up on that like this is another question i see very often uh especially with pe firms that i've talked Mm -hmm. to how what like i'm gonna i'm gonna we're gonna start aba program who should i hire as my director right should i should they have five years experience should they have one year experience this is a post going around on Facebook right now. Would you hire a BCBA with one year, less than a year experience as a director? I saw that. Oh my uh, God. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not commenting on that right now. Uh, but like, what, what would you do? Like, cause I assume that even if you incorporate speech as best you can, they're still kind of alone on this Island by themselves. And should we be hiring someone with a lot, like three, four five years of experience or, okay to hire someone coming out of school with and they're they're you know just they're just starting out like i guess that's a lot of questions Mm -hmm. but well so for speech specifically they need they when they graduate they have what's called a cfy year so it's a clinical fellowship year so they need to take a year where they're supervised by another speech pathologist so that might be a good option for your second speech therapist where you want, you're maybe not ready to hire someone totally full-time or you can't hire somebody at like their top salary line. And so being able to get somebody who's in training and needs that supervision might be a great option for your second person when you're expanding even more. Right. Um, I think you definitely need somebody who has 
good experience, you know, at least three, four or five years. I think what's more important, and I know like Simon Sinek and Brene Brown always kind of say these things, is, is the attitude more than the experience. Sure. Um, and I think that the will, having experience in ABA helps because I think it demystifies ABA for the speech therapist um, if they've had a positive experience. Um, <laughs> right. But the the willingness, they have to have that willingness to, to be starting something because they have to be able to be that kind of person who can take initiative to say, well, this is what speech therapy goals are supposed to look like. This is what how I was trained to write session notes. And if you have somebody who doesn't feel confident in their own discipline or who doesn't have that like go-getter initiative to basically start their own division, mm-hmm. then you can't rely on them right. to develop it. And you it's kind of, you don't know how to write a speech session note and right. they don't know how to write a speech session note. And so who's making a speech session note that's ethical and promoting high treatment integrity. Right. And then we'll um, also pass a recruitment audit, right? <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. like, that was one thing we like at one point, and I don't remember how far back this was because it was 10 years. And, uh, but there was one point where we started putting up feelers for a speech therapist and that, that came up, right? Like, uh, I can remember talking to one speech therapist and they were like, okay, how is this going to work? What, what do we do? How do we set this up? And I'm like, I don't know. I thought that's what you were bringing, right? Because like, how am I supposed to know what you need? Like, what supplies do you need? What, what, what kind of, what size of area do you need? Right? Because at this point we had a clinic. So do you need one office? Do you need two? Like, mm-hmm. how big of a space do you need? Like, do you want to be in the ABA area? Or do you want it separated from the, the area? Because it's so loud. Like, so what exactly did they need? And they, the one person I was talking to was, they couldn't really answer that stuff. So I guess like, well, I mean, I that know. kind of put a halt on it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were that, like, that stopped okay, the whole thing. well, we don't know. I mean, yeah. of course, yes, we, we could have put in know. more research, <laughs> yeah. but, you yeah, know, yeah. we're like, so, okay, like, well, if you guys don't know, then, okay, maybe we'll put a hold on this and revisit it later yeah, at yeah. another time. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, you know, if we do come back, I wonder if there's like a top 10 questions that you should be asking a speech therapist uh, before you bring them on as your like lead speech therapist or director of. You know, because I assume that they have to have a wide ranging experience to to be able to, like you said, they're they're making their own department, basically. Right. And there's not going to be a ton of oversight because, at least in my experience, I wouldn't know what they were doing. Right. And and then that again leads me back to do I have the confidence and the ability to research this enough that I can confidently assume that I'm making the right decisions here? I don't know. That, that all yeah. makes me more nervous than I started this presentation. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I kind of was like, wow, it sounds so, I, I feel like I've just been so lucky because I've worked with so, some really amazing people. Right. You know, I've worked with a few people where they're really amazing at providing therapy, but they're not going to be able, they don't know how to, design a system or they don't know how they don't know they know how they like to provide therapy but they don't know maybe what the industry standards are or they don't know how to compromise like you know i'm in new york city sometimes there's not another space 
for speech therapy. Like we can't, sure. we can't build out because there's, there's nowhere to build in New York City. Sometimes there's not another space for it. And so you might have to push into the classroom. And so if you're pushing into the classroom, what are the treatment space? What does a speech therapist need then to make it successful? How does it need to look then? But yeah, I feel like you would want to interview somebody, somebody who is very aware that they're building that out and that they have both the speech therapy experience mm -hmm. and that like initiative and like leadership and like the professionalism skills that they can take the lead, but then also be able to be collaborative. That if you say like, well, I don't think that these treatment notes are going to pass an audit. What are we going to do about it? Or something like that, that they can take that feedback and go with it. And then they're, they're not going to like lead with authoritarian. I can't say it out loud. Gosh, that's a very hard word for me. I'm so surprised. <laughs> Um, but they're not going to lead with like an iron fist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you know, hearing you say the word collaborative, I just, I just, I don't know, like I kind of like felt a reaction to that because I think that whether you're trying to build a multidisciplinary team or not, the collaboration piece is so important. Funders, you know, expect it. I feel like it's best practices right. and I wonder if, if, you know, maybe moving forward, maybe that might even be something to future it to, um, you know, explore more and look at like, what does collaboration look like? look like? Yeah. yeah. yeah define collaboration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great idea. It's a hard, it's very hard. Those are like the things that I do a lot of trainings and also my own reading. Yeah. I do a lot of like, my own professional development on collaboration and leadership because nobody teaches you those things. No. I feel like, and I think that we assume that they can be, they can't be taught, that they're like this innate thing that, you know, Brene Brown was born Brene Brown. Right. Brene <laughs> leader, and, right. She, you know, she worked really hard to be who she is and yeah. she's amazing and she's inspirational, but right. she worked really hard at those things and she learned them, whether it was through someone else or her on her own time, she yeah. learned how to do those things. All right. Yeah. Wow. This has been great. Yeah, some of the feedback we got was this was this was a awesome. So thank you for coming on. Aww. I really appreciate well, thank it. You. This is yeah, Aww. this is awesome. So I'm sure that it will benefit a lot of people. And um, you know, depending on the number of questions, you know, we'll reach out, maybe have like a Q and A if you're on board with that, and then. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think we're good. Yeah. Is, is there Great. any, like, you know, I, I say that and then I'm going to say more, but like, <laughs> uh, like I, I would also recommend just to whoever's listening to have some kind of a budget in mind and like, mm. as you're planning this out, because I assume it's like, it's going to be a little bit different than a BCBA, right? Because assuming you've got a good flow going, you hire a BCBA, you fill them with cases, everything's great. But you, if you're, especially if you're bringing on a speech therapist, we're going to be credentialing, you know, there's going to be supplies that we don't have. Uh, I, I assume treatment, uh, th things for treatment that we don't have that we're going to have to budget out. And maybe a salary that you are not making any money off of at this moment because you're credentialing, you're setting things up. And yeah. so that may be another piece that you just want to have in the back of your head as you're going through this process. Yeah. Uh, and I would say speech OT and PT tend to have maybe slightly higher salaries sure. than BCBAs, depending on where you are and the experience level and all those pieces. Right. But I think that there does tend to be a higher expectation for salary and also if, you're, if you want the first person that you're bringing on to be somebody who has enough experience 
an initiative, yeah. they're probably going to be at the higher end yeah. of a salary range. Yeah. I, also considering those pieces too. Yeah. I assume like they're, this is going to be a director level, right? Like yeah. I, I assume that this is the first person that we're getting at least that should be the attempt. And so a director's level salary is going to be higher. Uh, so yeah. yeah, expect that for sure. Okay. Right. Well, thank you so much for your yeah, for you. being here today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the products and services that we provide, please go to www.3pisquared.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe or add it to your favorites. This way you won't miss any episodes. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching 3Pi Squared. Thank you so much for listening.